Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Olena Palko, author of Making Ukraine Literature and Cultural Politics under Lenin and Stalin, published by Bloomsbury Academic in 2020. Olena Palko is Leverhulme Early Career Fellow in the Department of History, Classics, and Archaeology at Berwick University of London. Her research interests lie in the field of early Soviet cultural history and the interwar history of Eastern Europe. She was awarded her PhD from University of East Anglia in 2017 and held research fellowships at Free University and Basel University. Olena Palko is also co-editor of Making Ukraine, Negotiating, Contesting, and Drawing Borders in 20th Century Ukraine, which will be published in 2021. She's also co-authored and co-edited a special issue in the National Identities Journal, Contested Minorities in the New Europe, which will also be published in 2021. Hello, Olena. Hi, Natalia. Thank you so much for joining me today. And um, I'm really intrigued by uh, your book, Making Ukraine, uh, which for me appears as an intersection on both literature and politics, uh, literature and politics and literature and history. Uh, Would you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, Thank you, Natalia, for having me, first of all. And uh, yes, indeed, um, I have this uh, um, interdisciplinary interest, although I don't really have an interdisciplinary background. Um, I studied, I finished um, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of uh, Kyiv, Tarashevchenko University, where I studied uh, political sciences, but then I switched to history. So uh, for my PhD, I already focused on, on history and actually on this interwar period in Ukraine. But I think so mostly the link uh, to my PhD and this project is more kind of coming from my um my background in political sciences, because I was really intrigued by national communism as a as a theory, as a practice, as a political doctrine um, in the early 1920s. And then it kind of, uh, I wrote my BA dissertation on this, and then it developed into um, 
like a PhD topic. But um, when I started thinking what I actually wanted to focus on in my PhD, I didn't really want to do a political history, not to do like, not kind of to look at political parties, their programs, although that was an important part of, of for some sections of this book and my, 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 my PhD dissertation, uh, first of all. But I always had this interest in literature and culture. And then um, the topic of, of this or the focus of this of this book and my, my uh, dissertation was actually inspired by by the play I saw in Lviv, uh, Between Two Powers. Um, this was the uh, play uh, based on Volodymyr um, Venechanko, uh, I believe a novel, or maybe not a novel, actually, it was a play uh, between between two powers. And actually there he was talking about uh, um, those uh, kind of Ukrainian family splits along political and ideological lines. And this is this is when I got kind of interested also to, to look at um, intellectuals and especially writers and see how they influenced the situation in the 1920s, but at the same time, what was their position? Because there was no uniform position, right? Also among the intellectuals at the time. And yes, this is how I started thinking about the kind of this intersection between literature, politics, and history. And the protagonists, they basically, yeah, I guess this was just, uh, for me, it was an obvious choice whom to pick. And this is how it kind of the book uh, came about, or the, mm -hmm. the dissertation first, and then a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so your uh, two main characters are uh, Tichina and Ekhvulovi, and uh, we will talk about them uh, in a moment. But first of all, I would like uh, to um, um, uh, talk a little bit about Soviet Ukraine in uh, general terms, uh, because to some extent, Soviet Ukraine is still some sort of terra incognita for many. It is a challenge to even start a conversation at uh, sometimes, as there are so many side notes to uh, make. So what do we mean by Soviet Ukraine? When and how it starts and who contributed to the making of Soviet, Soviet Ukraine? Uh, so what's the interaction between Soviet Russia and Soviet Ukraine as well? And I think, well, that's one of those main issues that um, um, uh, come up when we even start talking about uh, Soviet Ukraine. So would you just um, give us uh, some uh, uh, general general terms, right, in which um, your project um, is contextualized? Yes, thank you. It's a good question. And I actually, um, when, uh, uh, you know, getting my books through the review and then the editing process, I met always with this question, why do I write sometimes Soviet Ukraine with a small letter, you know, <laughs> not a capital letter? Because everyone assumes that it's only the, you know, kind of the, the republic, the Soviet Ukraine as a republic. But actually, also, this is this was the idea or kind of this is where my my um, political sciences background comes in and my uh, previous research on Ukrainian uh, national communism. And those uh, representatives of different political parties, especially the Borodbista, they were trying to build a Soviet Ukraine, not necessarily the one envisaged by the Bolsheviks. And they were looking for a Soviet Ukraine, the Radyanska, yes, or like kind of the, 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 the country that would be built on those democratic principles of, of, of Rade, of councils, of Soviets, and um, that would also be proletarian, but not necessarily the one 
um, the Bolsheviks kind of came to build later on. And this is for me one of those kind of um, questions, how this uh, political dispute between different uh, representatives of different projects of S-Soviet Ukraine, how they shape the cultural debate at the time as well. So um, I think we can break your question into into two. First, what is as Soviet Ukraine, then we have different projects of a Soviet Republic in Ukraine in the, in the early 1920s, or it actually starts perhaps with, with the revolution in 1917, and then during the, the civil war period, and until the, we can say, mid-1920s. This is when different projects of, of a Soviet government were still kind of being tried out and, and maybe um, yeah, contested, and obviously we know who, who won in this project. So then we have uh, their Republic, Soviet Ukraine, that was part of the Soviet Union. So for me, it's mostly um, mostly either kind of theoretical approaches of seeing Ukraine, and then we have the Republic as an entity, the kind of part of the Soviet state and the Soviet Union. Um, so this is kind of one kind of distinction between between what what. What, what is Soviet Ukraine? And then obviously when we speak about uh, the Soviet Republic, Ukraine, um, then it definitely came about, we can say that, that it started already, the process of, of creating so Soviet Ukraine started uh, on a par with, with the Ukrainian People's Republic in 1917. And, and this is in kind of in this during the civil war um, as the Red Army expanded or kind of uh, went further and further east the Soviet Republic, the Bolshevik Republic, was kind of uh, taking root uh, on the territory of Ukraine. And then, obviously, even in the early 1920s, there are still uh, uh, there are still beliefs that an alternative Soviet Ukraine was possible. So there are still, even within the Bolshevik government, there is still a belief, not not even a belief. There is still um, this kind of of dilemma: what what is the connection between Soviet Ukraine and Soviet Russia? What is the role of Soviet Ukraine within the Soviet Union? And we can see that even until the late 1920s, there is always, or, or at least um, among those people whom I study, like those, we can say national communists or Ukraine-minded communists, or um, those who see Kharkiv as, as their capital rather than Moscow, there is still a belief that they are as kind of a separate entity. And as a separate entity, they have or they they should build their own culture. And there is, on the other hand, we have those people who come from Moscow or who choose Moscow as their orientation, main political, ideological, and even cultural orientation, who see Soviet Ukraine as a part of, of the Soviet Union, of the bigger entity. And it's not, they don't see that, or they don't, they don't participate in this debate about the independence of the Soviet government or sovereignty of its culture and so on and so on. So I think uh, why this the period of the 1920s is so interesting is because you have so many different, firstly, projects of a Soviet Ukraine. And later on, when we have, when, when the Soviet power kind of was established uh, during the consolidation of the Soviet regime, we have still a lot of different currents and movements, ideological, political, cultural uh, movements that try to understand what Soviet Ukraine is and like who supports it, what kind of culture it should create, um, 
and and all those debates are ongoing and i think this is what i was trying to show in my book um firstly that that it's this political debate um was very well translated into a cultural and literary debate, but at the same time, the literary debate informed also the political debate. So there is a, this intersection between culture, literature, and politics at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, yeah, this is kind of, they all in there, all together are trying to understand what Soviet Ukraine is about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed, the 20s were these unique years, right, in the history of the uh, Soviet Union, and uh, indeed it was just this, like, uh, in, uh, eruption of all kinds of trends and movements. However, they were successfully curved at some point. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, 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 at the beginning of your uh, research, you also make a distinction between Soviet Ukrainian literature and Soviet literature in Ukrainian. So would you um, tell us uh, a little bit about this differentiation before we uh, talk in more detail about Tychina and Hoylevay, about the main characters of your project? Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, um, yeah, this was when I was trying to think about kind of how to conceptualize uh, two different paths of my of my uh, protagonists of two writers, and I was thinking about those different um, ways that Ukrainian or the Soviet canon came into being. And then at some point when I was reading through primary sources, I found this distinction by a Ukrainian uh, party uh, official and ideologist. Um, Koryak, who said that we need to put an end to Ukrainian literature and start creating uh, proletarian literature in Ukrainian. And I thought that even then, for those party ideologists, it was clear that there is Ukrainian literature and there is like literature created in Ukrainian. And then I started thinking that this was indeed the purpose of the Soviet government to create literature or culture in Ukrainian to reach the the masses, right? So kind of they used the language as a medium, as a tool to reach the masses, to engage them into the Soviet regime, to engage them in kind of Soviet society and make them contributors to the society. Because you cannot really... um, you can maybe win the war with 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 weapons, but you cannot establish a successful kind of system and of government if you don't have any any support, grassroots support. And then, actually, at some point, I was also listening to uh, or reading uh, those books um, by Vera Geva, for instance, a literary scholar from Ukraine who wrote a lot about Rilsky and recently on Bajan when she says that there is Ukrainian literature and there is a Soviet literature. And she was like, if you like this book on Bajan, it's actually called the biography of non-Soviet Bajan, right? So she kind of makes this clear distinction. But when reading through those, um, reading uh, the works, the literary works of those uh, writers, you can see that those people were not necessarily seeing themselves as only Ukrainians. I mean, this is obviously ethnically they were Ukrainians, but nationalism was not their ideology. They were, a lot of them were really supporting the Soviet regime. It can be Bolshevik or non-Bolshevik. So they had this idea of, of this fusion of nationalism and socialism, and they were uh, contributing to, to, to creating this Soviet culture, but not necessarily the culture that Moscow planned or or saw or tried to develop for Ukraine. And 
Also then, of course, I was inspired a lot by, by uh, Michelle uh, Fowler and her book when she was writing about Kurbas, and she has this very similar idea about um, Soviet Ukrainian culture. And those people, those, those artists, those cultural agents in the 1920s, they were creating Soviet Ukrainian culture because they were both Soviet and Ukrainian, and you cannot really differentiate the two. So for me, instead of looking at this either or, either you are a communist or either you are a Ukrainian, it's it's clear that this these people, this cohort of people in the 1920s, they, they saw themselves as both. And I think when we when we um, try to separate it or tell the story of only Ukrainian or only Soviet, we lose this this uh, complexity of the period and uh, so yeah, I was kind of trying with my book, uh, trying to contribute to this new um, debate or, or new uh, reinterpretation of the 1920s as the period when when communism could also be national. And this was not kind of a crime of those people to believe in in in, in the communist or communist uh, communism or socialist ideology. And this was yeah part of their identity at the time and this is was part of, part of the culture that they were trying to create mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so and your main protagonists um Khvulovy and um Tichina, you mentioned that uh, this choice was uh, sort of um obvious so would you guide us through those obvious reasons why you chose these two <laughs> Well, it was obvious because, you know, it's kind of you always know that these are the greatest, uh, mm-hmm. you know, literary figures of the 1920s. Because, of course, you have Dovzhenko, the greatest film director. You have Kurbas, who is the greatest uh, theater director and so on. And then you have Khvilovy, who was the, you know, kind of um, whom even other uh, writers saw as the most senior, although he was almost the same age as as, as, as those young writers, proletarian writers. Um, and Ticino, of course, he was a recognized and, and, and poet and the modernist poet and one of the greatest poet, uh, poets of, of, uh, of that generation. Uh, so for me, this was like trying to understand those greatest and mm-hmm. how they came, you know, to uh, how kind of how their life and their literary activity was shaped by the political events, but at the same time, how they influence those political events. And what is interesting that um, that those writers, although uh, I was trying not to tell this story in isolation, the story of Ticina and the story of Hvelovy, and maybe we can also talk about this kind of biographical approach, but what is interesting is that uh, at different times, um, Hvelovy dedicated one of his poems to Ticina, and at Later on, Ticina dedicated a poem to Khvilovy. So there was this communication, even when they lived in different cities in Kiev and Kharkiv, that at the time it was like a yeah, ocean between those those places. But they did know each other and appreciate each other, despite the ideological differences. And for me, it was also interesting how, yeah, how, how this appreciation worked, how... Uh, how those writers from different perspectives, different ideological perspectives met in the kind of in Soviet hierarchy and at the same time later on diverged their passes. So yeah, this is what's kind of for me the why the choice basically. Mm-hmm. And obviously there was also I speak of it in the introduction, there was also this symbolic moment of nineteen thirty three when uh Hulovi commits suicide and Ticina 
the poet of the national revolution and the national and the Ukrainian People's Republic, he writes, he submits this um, this his poem Partia Vedea, the party leads to the or his poem is published on the pages of Pravda, the the, the, the central uh, Moscow newspaper, and he become thereafter a poet eulogist. So for me, it was also kind of this this. This 1936 was a crossroads when people from two different ideological backgrounds meet and go into different directions. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so this was kind of different reasons perhaps for this, my choice. But uh, yeah, I thought they worked well. I don't know. (laughs) I think it's for readers to decide. (laughs) And uh, what literature uh, or what literatures maybe uh, did they represent in relation to your differentiation between uh, Soviet uh, Ukrainian literature and Soviet literature in Ukrainian? Mm -hmm, Thanks. yeah, so uh, it's kind of I was trying to show that. Uh, so maybe I don't know. It it was the most complex, um, you know, problem uh, for me to try to put it in those two different categories. But at the same time, I was kind of my idea was to show that Khvelyovy was the uh, promoter of Soviet Ukrainian culture. Whereas Tichina came to represent Soviet culture in Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. But the Tichina came to represent the, this Soviet culture, the Soviet canon after the late Tichina, after 1933, which is beyond the scope of my book, right? So I'm kind of have his Soviet uh, persona in mind, but at the same time, I'm talking, I'm kind of trying to look how he came to that point. Mm-hmm. So how during the 1920s, kind of trying to show that it was not a non, it was not a linear process. It was so complex for each and every writer, I think, to come to accept this first the Soviet regime, but at the same time, their ideology, their cultural agenda, their politics, and so on. That uh, we can we can say that that the China came to, or came to represent Soviet culture in Ukrainian, but. During the 1920s, he often was also, you know, he was also supporting Khvilovy in his endeavor. And, and he was kind of trying to, trying to, I don't know, sometimes please all different sides. And this is very interesting how he writes poems that satisfy different, uh, different camps. And uh, so this is basically through his uh through his kind of through the line of Tichina, I was trying to show that Soviet Soviet culture in Ukrainian, um, the kind of the formation or, or kind of the the um, creation of this Soviet culture was 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 very complicated, uh, not least of the Soviet Ukrainian culture that for me was represented by Khvilovy because in the late 1920s, early 1930s, he also started writing. Um, novels or short uh, stories that were very much in line with the with the, with the with the party spirit so it was the same kind of process of people trying to accommodate to the um, to the to the demands of the time basically and this is interesting how um, yeah how how this kind of mixture um, yeah what what kind of what's the result of this mixture mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals 
Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, and in your book, you uh, combined uh, um, a lot of approaches, and one of them is biographical approach, which you already mentioned. However, the book is more than just uh, biographical portraits, let's say, of both, of Tichina um, and Hvilovi. Um, so, um, to some extent, you have a lot of references to the literary works and to the literary developments, so to speak. On the other hand, you do include a lot of uh, historical references, which create this kind of environment, right, within which uh, the two writers uh, write. Uh, on the other hand, there are also some, let's put it this way, touches on their biographies that add something different to their portraits. So um, would you comment on this maybe benefits or advantages of um, uh, employing a biographical approach in this kind of, um, for this kind of um, project? Because, because uh, uh, your book is not, a, um, is not another biography, right, on Tichina or Hulovi. Yes, definitely. This is, um, yes, I was, I was kind of, uh, I think in my approach is, is I'm, I'm trying to focus uh, myself the most on these two two people, two protagonists. But as you say, it's not a biography per se, because I'm not really. Um, it's a lot of details, so their kind of of their life is omitted. Is is maybe sometimes I'm I'm choosing what to cover that works well for my historical kind of the the history of my kind of of, of uh, politics at the time uh, because obviously I'm I'm firstly I'm not a literary scholar and I think this is perhaps I should have mentioned earlier when we were talking about this interdisciplinary approach um, since I'm not a literary scholar uh, for me it was very difficult to decipher their poems for for mm. instance right I I, I like when I was reading uh, some secondary literature on, um, you know, the, the kind of literary analysis of their of their uh, short stories or poems, it was very sometimes difficult for me to understand, you know, the, the line of argument. And that's why maybe sometimes I felt that there is a danger of this interdisciplinary approach because historians might think that I'm using sources which do not necessarily tell us, you know, mm-hmm. they don't support the historical argument. And Whereas for literary scholars, my analysis of their poems perhaps is a bit shallow. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's, this is this, this uh, danger of interdisciplinary approach. But at the same time, I hope that uh, the, my analysis of the historical situation is kind of enriched by the reference to um, their creative writing. Mm-hmm. Um and then, uh, so as for biographical approach, uh, yes, so my main focus is on the construction of the Soviet Ukrainian culture, which I try to look at through the two, the kind of, it's not really their lives, but they are perhaps public personas of this, of these two people. And this is why uh, it's, it's kind of my approach um, 
then obviously we can speak about sources that I'm using. I'm trying, I'm using sources, uh, they are autobiographies, they are uh, creative writing, but also party uh, sources like coming from uh, from the party. And this, these sources are, sometimes they touch on the China and Huawei, but often they don't. So as you said, it's like, I have this, this this broader picture of what was going on in the Republic and trying to contrast those events with the individual life of those two protagonists. And um, I must admit that uh, even if I wanted to write a kind of classical biography, I don't think I would have found enough sources for that because because at first maybe I had a more you know, I, I believe that I would be able to write or, or kind of to uncover more details about the lives of the China and Huawei. But when, when I started working in, in the archives, it was clear to me that, that I cannot really find anything, you know, new about them. Like archives, the secret uh, service, like the, the archive of the secret services of Ukraine, they they don't have anything that we don't know yet. Or maybe they do, it's just that I didn't find or, or I was not, you know, I was not given those files because it's, so then it's, you don't have enough, or I didn't have enough material to, to write a dedicated biography of the China Huawei. But at the same time, I had this, this um, desire to write about the decade and, and how the, the, what was going on, like kind of how culture, politics and literature all intersected in creating something new. So for me, it was this choice of, having a bigger picture, but try to balance it with a more narrow uh, approach and look at those those two particular individuals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree with this statement in terms of uh, multidisciplinary approaches. Yes, well, uh, there are some dangers <laughs> and we can be accused of uh, some maybe incomplete analysis. But on the other hand, I also believe multidisciplinarity also opens up new perspectives and new inspirations, I would say. And um, sometimes I think about this approach not... Uh, what we read but how we read and that's exactly what your book um, demonstrates uh, you mentioned that you were using a lot of uh, primary sources like Svotky I believe reports and Ankiete and um, um, other uh, archival materials uh, but when these materials are put in the context of let's say literary explorations they would speak to us in a different voice voice probably and uh, i think that's that's this beauty of multidisciplinarity to some extent although many will probably disagree uh, uh, with me on that but um uh, sometimes i i think it deserves a separate conversation <laughs> this discussion of multidisciplinarity uh, i also would like to ask you about uh, how these two protagonists were perceived um, during the Soviet times and afterwards, because there is some drastic uh, difference between the two. Yeah, thank you. Um, actually, to start, uh, maybe this this is a this is a very good question, and I actually uh, published an article on the reception of Huelovy um, in kind of the historiography on Huelovy and how it changed in in Ukraine, in Soviet Ukraine, and in independent Ukraine and abroad. And uh, this is also kind of can be a separate conversation. But actually, I want to start answering uh, this question with an anecdote. And when I was working in uh, the Vernadsky Library, the National Library of Ukraine, and it was perhaps, let's say, five years ago, maybe less, maybe more, but more or less five years ago. And I had 
I uh, had a lot of volumes of Ticina and then I was returning them to the counter and a man, I think he was in his 60s or 70s, he saw those books and he was like, really? You read Ticina? Don't you know about, you know, Tractor Poli Dir Dir Dir, you know this? And I thought, people still think about Ticina that, you know, they, they, they wouldn't read him or wouldn't even consider him because he was a party eulogist. And this was very interesting, you know, how, because obviously I was already, I went to school in, in independent Ukraine. And for me, the China was a very different, like, you know, we read the China very differently. We read the China, like his, his early poems from 1917, Sonny Klarnete, and, and then uh, Plug in the So the emphasis was very different for us. So... I knew that there was a Soviet Tichina, but we didn't read him. <laughs> so for me, it was like, here we meet two different generations and two different uh, appreciations or readings of one, one the same person, right? And um, kind of coming back to you, going back to your question, uh, so I think we, we need to separate Tichina and Hvilovi. And, and, and if I, since I started talking about Tichina, so Tichina was definitely became one of the greatest Soviet poets, right? And there are so many biographies on Tichina and you have a museum of Tichina and the institutes, right? Like of the National Academy of Sciences named after Tichina and so on and so forth. And also there are so many sources in the archives on Tichina because his entire uh, like collection of his private documents went to the uh, Central Archive of Literature and uh, art and literature of Ukraine. So uh, I actually, when I was trying to compare, I even asked the archivists how many uh, documents or files they had on China, and they told me that it was around 150,000 documents mm-hmm. or files mm-hmm. on the China, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, in the same archive, when I asked for the uh, documents on, on Hvilovi, there were only, I don't know, maybe five files on, on Hvilovi, mm-hmm. and most of them were... Uh, copies from newspapers about his suicide. Uh, so it was like so interesting for me because both people, they were like great representatives of, you know, the decade and Ukrainian literature. But at the same time, you have abundant records for the, for the China and almost nothing for Khvilovi. And obviously this was the result of the legacy of the Soviet regime and how they treated those two people, right? Mm-hmm. Tichina was was a celebrated poet, so he had a lot of. He was allowed to keep his records and then later to pass them on to the. Or basically, his wife passed them on to the archive. But for for Hvilovi, after his suicide, everything was gathered, sealed, and maybe I don't know, destroyed or whatever, because they they had this idea to clear the memory of Hvilovi, not only. Like kind of his his uh, his attacks or, or his short stories were uh, kind of yeah were uh, not allowed to be read or he wasn't promoted anymore as a as a writer, but even the memory of Tichina was was oh, sorry Quillovi was erased or they were trying to erase it and this is interesting that even his uh, his grave was leveled to the ground because they didn't want, you know, any memory of Willowy. And this obviously defined the way he was perceived until the, eight, uh, the late 1980s. Willowy was one of, of, of very few writers or cultural figures of the time who was not rehabilitated uh, in, in, in the 1950s, right, after the Stalin's death. And 
on the one hand, it shows how dangerous he was perceived, right, by the regime even after Stalin's death. But at the same time, it's also kind of, uh, it's, it's, it makes it very difficult to study Hvilovi because of the, the scarcity of sources. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, one of the first articles on Hvilovi, or kind of a literary analysis of Hvilovi. It was, I believe, in, in 1988, when, and it was titled, It's Time to Return Hvilovi you know, to Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. So we have this gap between 1933 and 1988 when when nobody really studied uh, Hvilovi or read Hvilovi. Um, There were obviously, he was known in the diaspora, but also the perception of Hvilovi and as well Ticina um, was very different to to that, that it was in the 1930s. And... um, if we speak about the diaspora, it's also we have this uh, perception of Ticina as a, as a traitor until recently, and nobody wanted to also read Ticina. But Hvilovi was perceived, it was also kind of the perception of, of, of Hvilovi depended whether you were on the left or on the right. For the left, like kind of on the right, and it was interesting when I was reading um, Don Sov's account of, of Hvilovi's life and, and, and his literary um Korea, when he said that uh, he was uh, the last representative of Ukrainian nationalism, although he was a communist, right? So you would think that those from the right would condemn Hvilovi, but for for, for Donso, he considered uh, Hvilovi to be a nationalist, you know? And uh, later on, obviously, it was uh, in the 1950s, the perception of, of Hvilovi changed, because then you have uh, kind of yeah, more... Um, is the kind of this is was obviously um, the result of a new wave of, of immigration to to the West, to the U.S. and and and, and Canada, and you have more uh, representatives of Ukrainian nationalism, all kind of nationalist movements coming to the West, and they had a very different perception of Khvilovy, and they started to condemn him as one of the communists who enabled uh, the kind of the regime and 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 kind of the purges and everything. So this is interesting also how during the time or in this in the 20th century or after 1933, how the perception changed and how it depended on the generation, on the ideological standpoint of, of each particular um, review or reviewer of, or, or scholar. Um, so I think it's, 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 it's also when you... Um, both for the China and Hulovi, it is interesting. Like when you read uh, secondary literature, you need to deconstruct mm-hmm. the the those who write those accounts, mm-hmm. and and it was also an exercise in itself, mm-hmm. I guess. It's mm-hmm. uh, it was it was it was an interesting. So uh, for you, yeah. for you, uh, for you as a historian, right? So this kind of memory uh, about both Tichina and Hulovi was constructed right by not their writings but by uh, the um, commentators let's say uh, critics uh, who wrote works about uh, Tichina and Hvilovi so this it's it's kind of a um, political memory right constructed by the critics under the regime for for you as a historian so how would you how how would you describe this construction of their perception uh, of the um, as a historian yeah, I mean, you are right completely. I think it was obviously, and and we are trying. But so as as I think in the if if we were in the nine in, in the early nineteen 
1990s, you know, we were would be still very much influenced by the Soviet perception of of the two writers, right? But as kind of, I think my perception of of the period and the two writers changed significantly um, because I was in the West, because I was outside the Ukraine, like Ukraine and its academic environment, because uh, maybe. It's it's it was the influence of of the school where I, I you know I was but we saw all of them exactly in this kind of dichotomy dichotomy of either or they all were great nationalists like kind of not nationalists but great admirers and patriots of Ukraine trying to do everything for the Ukrainian state and uh, kind of their um, their endeavor was crushed by the by the regime by Stalin and mm-hmm. so on so we see it as Ukraine the fight of Ukraine against the Soviet Union or Moscow. Mm-hmm. But being maybe outside of this of this narrative uh, helped me to see that the process was far more complex, that, that those people in the 1920s did, were not necessarily, or did not see themselves as victims. They saw themselves as participants of the discussion and the political debate and so on. Um, and it's interesting. It's also there is one of the episodes uh, when uh, with with Khvilo, uh, with when he was uh, criticized on the highest level, and um, in his letter to uh, I believe Yalovi, uh, he writes that uh, that I will never give up my membership card, right? Mm-hmm. So he saw himself not only like he saw himself as a party member, and uh, obviously this was also a kind of a zeitgeist and and. One could not be outside the party and continue working and so on and so on. But I think it was not only opportunism. I think it was also their deep belief in maybe not the system as it came, kind of as it, as it came about, but in its foundations. And I think this is this is what interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I want to kind of coming back to a question. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm kind of wonder, um, but. To coming back to your question, I think that um, our perception of those two people is shaped not only by the memory constructed by the Soviet Union, but also the memory constructed by the independent Ukraine, mm-hmm. as much as the Soviet regime. And I think that we are kind of going from one extreme to another, and 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 this is the problem, I believe. And uh, that's why I was I was trying to show that it can be both and it's not bad mm-hmm, that it mm-hmm. was both. Mm-hmm. Yes. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, this is, this is kind of, um, yeah, mm-hmm. answering your question. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and the subtitle of, um, uh, of the book is, um, literature and uh, cultural politics on Lenin and Stalin. Um, and, uh, how would you describe the, uh, um, to what extent the politics and the pol- and the policies changed uh, if compared um, Lenin and um, Stalin, if there is or if there was any change in your opinion? Thank you. So yeah, the subtitle was actually it was a compromise with the with the editors because uh-huh. they were looking for keywords, right? And and this is what people would would search for, like uh-huh. Lenin and Stalin, uh-huh. obviously. So it's 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 not necessarily. Um, my, uh, you know, view of, of, of the title of this book, but um, it did change. I would say that, that firstly, I think uh, in my book, I'm mostly writing about 
the kind of the cultural politics under Stalin already, mm-hmm. because the Lenin, the period of, of Lenin was was sort of kind of quite short, right? And and we can say we can uh, mostly, I think we can mostly talk only about the civil war period and, and then maybe a few more years afterwards. But mostly this is the this is the, the, the period under Stalin, right? And I think that um, there is definitely a change between Lenin and Stalin, but the change is informed by the historical events because obviously we have the civil war situation and then we have the peacetime situation and it differs significantly, right? Also, the, the impact on culture and literature is immense. The, the, the fact that people even even were publishing anything during the civil war is already uh, quite a feat, right? Because the, in the situation that Kyiv was in, Kharkiv, I think, was in in a much better situation at the time because the Soviets came and sort of stayed. But in Kyiv, this was like constant battlefield with with different mm-hmm. parties, not only the Bolsheviks and and and, and the national government. And um, so, yeah. But but if we if we focus only on Stalin, there is a huge difference between the early 1920s, the late 1920s, and the 1930s. And that's why I kind of finished my narrative in 1932-34, because this is, for me, is this kind of watershed when when this pluralistic uh, view on literature and institutional life of, of the letters in Ukraine becomes no more. Then we have one single union of Soviet writers. There is this kind of a centralized decision-making body on literature, on cultural agenda, and so on and so forth. And um, so I think, yes, this is kind of, I think for my book is more important the differences in the politics under Stalin. Mm-hmm. But Lenin, of course, is, is is a very important part of the story, kind of the, the literary politics under Lenin, because um, the civil war itself uh, enabled those uh, kind of the pluralism of approaches and those different views on proletarian literature, right? In, in, the, in the kind of 1917, 1921, uh, when we have the um, discussion and debate with the cult, with this Russian kind of led and Russian-centered uh, cult, that literature should be kind of proletarian-oriented and created by pro- proletarians and with proletariat at my, in mind, but w- who are those proletarians, right? And then we start this also kind of the diversion, I think, uh, between those uh, kind of Soviet Ukrainian literature and Soviet literature in Ukraine starts already there. Because when we read um, the text by Holloway during the uh, debate, during the literary discussion of the mid-1920s, we see that he writes about proletariat as well. But for him, proletariat is very different to the proletarian, the mass that the Bolsheviks are trying to reach out with their literature in Ukrainian. He dreamt of proletarian that would be cult- like kind of cultivated, uh, I mean, like kind of, you know, um, educated. And he was trying to, ed- he didn't want to educate. This was the approach of the, of the Soviet uh, side to educate people or kind of, you know, enlighten people. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, with his, with Vapleta, with the literary organization that he has created, he, they were writing high quality literature, waiting for the proletariat to raise to this level. So they were not, they didn't want to enlighten proletariat, right? With writing something very simple in Ukraine, in Ukrainian, just so they, they would read. They were writing high quality literature, waiting for the proletariat to raise to their level. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, this is another kind of very important um, um, factor or the component in this 
kind of it becomes a triad. It's it, there is politics, literature, and the masses, right? Because there is always a reception um, of literature, and I think this is when this is where Hvilovi and this project of uh, Soviet Ukrainian culture failed because they failed to reach the masses. Mm-hmm. This very elitist approach was not necessarily the most popular one. Although we now read that, we think like, you know, they are part of the Ukrainian canon and we think that uh, it was the same in the 1920s, but it was not, right? Even now, when you think about like, would a mass reader read Hvilovi? Maybe not, right? And uh, this is, I think this is this also a problem of reception that I tried also to investigate in one of my articles that I published uh, as a part of, this was part of my PhD, but it didn't go into the book, the reception of the this, this Soviet Ukrainian literature by the readers. Mm-hmm. And what I found that mostly they rejected those writers, most of them, because they were saying that their language, they don't understand the language, there is no clear storyline, um, the heroes are you know, not positive heroes, what can we learn from them, and so on and so on. So you see this conflict between the writers trying to create high quality literature and the masses that for the first time, you know, they were all or mostly all of them became literate in their languages because of all the poly, like kind of programs of the Soviet government, Ligbas and so on. They became literate. There was a market for Ukrainian literature, but they rejected this high quality mm-hmm. literature. And I think this is also, I think had, there been more support from the ground for this project, cultural project, the outcome might have been different, mm-hmm. but it was not, right? So I think the failure of this, of, this, of this project was not only because of the stronger part of the, of the Soviet uh, kind of union, the Communist Party, but also this lack of, of, of acceptance or understanding or appreciation from the Ukrainian readers as well. I think this is also crucial component to, to this to this um, question of how Soviet literature, the Soviet canon, came into being. Yeah, in your project, you also uh, mentioned Rostrilana uh, Vidrojenia, executed Renaissance, and maybe just a few words on how you contextualize Rostrilana uh, Vidrojenia in your project. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. Um, so it's it's a good question, and it's one of the these kind of. Um, theoretical, uh, one of the main components of my theoretical approach, uh, because uh, again, this, this, I think the, um, the narrative or this Rostrilna Vidrojina or executed Renaissance paradigm is what informs or used to inform my understanding of the period when I was at school, right? We only learned about those writers as a part of the Rostrilna Vidrojina. So this is the idea that those people were trying to create Ukrainian culture, but their attempts were crushed by a sort of external force. And for me, the problem with this paradigm is that not all of them were necessarily Ukraine-minded. Secondly, a lot of them survived. And the fact that they were not murdered or became victims of the regime poses questions So how do we read them? You know, can we say that, you know, they were less valuable as those who died? You know, so I think this is the problem of, of um, this is how we evaluate or if we, we use this paradigm, how do we evaluate people just 
by the fact that they died on the regime, hence they were against the regime, or what they actually created before or after and so on. So I definitely I, I use this paradigm and 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 I don't want to uh, to undermine it or, or anything because definitely and and in the 1950s when uh, this paradigm was uh, constructed or yeah was was proposed uh, it was definitely a great um, I, I don't know how to say it. it's not not initiative it's uh, was a great uh, success right because a lot of writers for the first time came. Um, were basically returned again to the readers, right? But at the same time, I think to to narrow our understanding of the decade only to this to this um, yeah, paradigm mm-hmm. is yeah takes away the complexity of the period. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that right now you're working on some different projects. Uh, so my understanding is that they are not connected with this book in any way. Well, oh, in any are. way, uh, perhaps, so I am still within the, the interwar period and Soviet Ukraine is one of the important uh, components of my study. So at the moment I'm looking at, um, so my con- current project is on minorities. It's on the um, contested minorities in the Polish-Soviet borderlands. And I'm trying to compare the, um, the way minorities were manipulated and instrumentalized by the Soviet and Polish regimes, minorities, the Ukrainian minority in Poland and Polish minority in Soviet Ukraine. So I am still within kind of the framework mm-hmm. and, and, and the same period, but definitely I moved away from cultural history to to maybe minorities history. Uh, but at the same time, um, I spend a lot of time on this project that you mentioned already on uh, the project on Ukraine's borders and making Ukraine um, kind of uh, drafting the hard border of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was kind of after 2014, it became clear that that those borders that we thought uh, were were there and would remain there forever. They were questioned, violated, and so on. And and then there was a question, so so how did Ukraine actually came into being? How this borderline was shaped? Who who participated in, in making the decision about these particular borders of Ukraine? And um, it's then we had this, this project um, it was a workshop and then a subsequent publication that uh, focuses uh, on uh, on these processes of negotiating and delineating Ukraine's borders with its seven members. And we are really looking forward to uh, to getting this, this uh, book out and perhaps discussing it later with mm-hmm. you as well. Yes. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, your uh, new uh, book as well. Well, thank you so much, Elena, for this conversation today on the uh, complexities of uh, political, cultural and historical developments uh, in Soviet Ukraine during its formative years, uh, as well as um, for uh, thank you for introducing and for making closer to us your two protagonists, Tychina and uh, Hulovi, and um, good luck on your on, on on all your projects. Thank you so much. Thank you, Natalia. Thank you. Uh, today I spoke with Olena Palko, author of uh, Making Ukraine Literature and Cultural Politics Under Lenin and Stalin, published by Bloomsbury Academic in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.